Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Erica Easley Hauser, and thanks for listening to my very first podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend time speaking with the author. Today, we'll be talking about two understudied topics, the history of Indian captivity practices and the Native American slave trade. Most of us are probably more familiar with the history and context of slavery regarding the African slave trade and slavery in the Atlantic world, or perhaps we've engaged in readings of literary analysis of Native American captivity narratives. These issues are addressed by historian Christina Snyder in her first published monograph, Slavery in Indian Country, The Changing Face of Captivity in Early America. Dr. Snyder is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Indiana in Bloomington. In the recent podcast on New Books Network and Native American Studies, Nicholas Rosenthal's new work described Indian country in the 20th century. In this podcast, we'll explore Indian country over a longer timeline from the pre-Columbian era to the 19th century and consider the understudied and evolving history of Indian captivity. I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation. Dr. Snyder, welcome to New Books Network, and thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Erica. No problem. Uh, Today, we're talking about your recently published book, Slavery in Indian Country, The Changing Face of Captivity in Early America, published in 2010 by Harvard University Press. Um, And I actually first want to congratulate you for uh, this wonderful book. It's won several prizes that I've taken a look at on the publisher's website, uh, which is pretty important and distinctive given that this is your first book. Um, So I want to congratulate you for, uh, for this research. Um, I want to start off by actually asking you, how did you come to this research and the subject of the Indian slave trade and captivity practices? Sure. Um, well, I I grew up in Macon, Georgia, which is, um, it's right in central Georgia, and it's also the home of the Okmulgee Mound site, which is mentioned briefly in the book. Um, but growing up, I was always interested in history, and I think the history of, of race and slavery is kind of unavoidable in Macon. You know, those monuments from the antebellum period, the Civil War, the era of Jim Crow, um, and just everyday race relations, I think, is something that I was very aware of growing up. Um, and I think what what was more mysterious to me at the time was um, the Native American past of the South. And, you know, we had these incredible monuments like Okmulgee around, which hinted at this uh, much older Southern history and what I thought um, of initially as a very different Southern history, one that I could not necessarily see connected to the history that I knew. Um, so when I was in college, I started to pursue Native studies more seriously. Um, and I initially worked in archaeology. And then uh, when I transitioned into graduate school, I went into a history program. Um, and I, I learned throughout my education that uh, really these two Souths weren't that different and that Native Americans um, participated um, very much as agents in the early South and were central to the region's history and still are, although in many ways uh, Indian removal in the 1830s, whereby Indians were forcibly removed um, from their homelands, from their eastern homelands, and in some ways also removed them from the South's historical memory. 
Um, so in a way, this book is an effort to reinsert them into that story and to, to see how they're central actors in that story. Okay. Yeah, I think you, you do a wonderful job covering, uh, especially the historiography, and I, I certainly appreciate that, uh, especially as a graduate student. Uh, <laughs> and I think you really do contribute uh, really nicely with the works of, you know, Alan Galay and Taya Miles, mm-hmm. really um, explaining what really Indian captivity was. And I think mm-hmm. you um, particularly stated that, you know, in terms of thinking about it in comparison uh, to slavery in the ways in which we think about it, um, sort of in the, the ways in the American imagination that you state, um, you know, I think you do a good job kind of explaining it and defining it um, very early on in your introduction. So I thought for the readers, if you could just explain a little bit about what really Indian captivity was and why you felt, you know, this need to explain how it actually evolved. Sure. Uh, I think one of the things that readers have really picked up on um, is is what I've done with the definition of captivity. And basically, I define a captive broadly as a forcibly detained outsider. So captives could enter Indian country in a number of different ways, um, usually through warfare or uh, through trade, but sometimes they even came voluntarily. So a person might enter an Indian nation without any connections and at that point become a captive. So it could be even be something like a runaway uh, from the colonies. Um, and I also say that captivity is a broad spectrum of experiences um, and that slavery is one aspect of that spectrum. So slavery would denote um, kind of the most exploitative relationship that a captive might have uh, with his captor society. And this would um, include um, exploiting captives for their social or um, material gain. Um, but there are other things that might happen to captives as well. So they might also be adopted. Um, they might also be killed. And um, I also argue that these um, that a person might transition from one category of captivity into another. So we do have examples of people initially um, being slaves who might then become adopted, so become members of um, the dominant group, either through um, you know an adoption ritual or even in some ways intermarriage. So if they've found a, a marriage partner with in the dominant society that might move them into the category of people who belonged. Um, and what I'm trying to do here is um, give a kind of more expansive view of both captivity and slavery and connect it with some of the more global historiography about the history of slavery. So in this way, what Native people are doing in the Southeast actually has a lot in common with what you see, for example, in colonial Africa. Um, mm-hmm. So. We also, you know, one of the things I explore in the book, and we can talk about this more, is how captivity does change over time. So because it's a broad spectrum and it's very flexible, um, it, that's one of the things that makes it such a useful practice is that Native people can change it depending on their needs and circumstances at any particular historical moment. Mm, okay. Well, you start actually by uh, talking about this wonderful uh, anecdote um, within the Natchez Indian history, and you uh, talk about this 1768 or 58, rather, incident where a tattooed serpent, who was a chief, uh, ends up basically killing one of his ser- servants. And you sort of begin by explaining, you know, this sort of story. And I just was interested in, you know, how did you come across this story um, in terms of, you know, talking about it and using it as kind of a springboard for your project? Sure. Uh, I mean, this is... Um, 
I actually first ran across the story in a directed readings course when I was a college <laughs> student uh, at the University of Georgia. And the Natchez are people who are interesting, especially to a lot of archaeologists, because um, they continued to practice um, mound culture into the 18th century. So, I mean, a lot of Native groups did this, but the Natchez are really interesting because um, uh, they continued to bury um, their leaders in mounds. They they practiced um, what we think of as a as a kind of Mississippian way of life, um, which is the term that archaeologists give to the pre-contact era in the southeast. The kind of archaeological culture that produces mounds and some really spectacular grave goods and things like that. Um, mm. But anyway, the, the Natchez are thought of as being uh, culturally conservative in that way and. Um, I was essentially what happens in the story is that this really important war leader named Tattooed Serpent dies, and his uh, his uh, fellow Natchez kill several retainers or um, his kind of dependents um, to accompany him into the afterlife. One of whom is uh, a servant of his, and I thought this. I mean, this is a story I think that really kind of captures the imagination, you know, and it's a very dramatic episode. It's not something that we typically think of as occurring among Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also really revealing because um, it's something that we see evidence of archaeologically. So we do mm-hmm. see some evidence of people who seem to have been ritually killed to accompany elites into the afterlife, um, especially at sites like Cahokia and Moundville, some of the more spectacular Mississippian sites. Um, and it also gives us some insights into um, the fact that this is not that this is not the kind of romantic, stereotypical image of Native Americans that's often presented to us in American popular culture. That Native Americans lived in rank societies. Um, that they had a rich tradition of of captivity practices as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, that was uh, kind of made me think about uh, something else that struck me in chapter two. You talk about in terms of you know some of the myths versus reality mm-hmm. of Native history, especially in early history, and you talk a little bit about cannibalism. And I was struck by that based on you know my readings and sort of understanding of how that was used, as you talk about to sort of racially demonize Native Americans by sort of trying to understand that practice. And so, can you can you talk a little bit about you know your readings about what that practice was and how it was perceived um, by sort of, I guess, you know, outsiders, mm-hmm. especially, you know, when we think about, you know, some of the early Spanish travel narratives that, you know, you see that appearing and mm-hmm. some of the stories of, of early, uh, you know, European settlers that um, sort of were thought to have died because of cannibalism mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So it seems like a, like a controversial topic, but I was I was particularly kind of interested in, in learning more about that. Sure. Yeah. And it's it has been a really controversial topic within Native American studies. And Really, I think at its core, it's a way of othering people, you know, by saying, I mean, cannibalism is is an act that's taboo in, in many, in most cultures around the world, right? It's one of the worst possible things a human could do. And in fact, you know, we don't. Um, the, the reason that I brought this up in chapter two is to talk about how Native Americans othered 
uh, different native groups. So mm -hmm. it was a way of distancing yourself from uh, a different native group. So, um, for example, we don't really, I mean, we don't have evidence of cannibalism in the Southeast. It's not, doesn't really seem to have been a cultural practice that people engaged in, but they talked about cannibalism quite a bit. So mm -hmm. there are examples in, in my book of the Choctaws, for example, called some of their neighbors the Atacapas, which just means cannibal in Choctaw. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are other oral traditions that, um, you know, one generation would pass to the next about either monsters who are cannibals or other native groups who are cannibals. And I think it's a, it's a way of creating one's own inside identity, you know, by saying that's something that's so despicable we would never do it, you know. And it mm -hmm. is, it's a way of, of animalizing or demonizing other people. And it's interesting because, you know, I think that you're right and that we use usually hear about this um, with regard to Europeans claiming that Indians cannibalized, which has been mm -hmm. really exaggerated in the in the literature. But Native mm -hmm. Americans and Africans were also afraid that this was something that Europeans did. So like if you mm -hmm. look at Equiano's narrative about his own capture as a slave in Africa and when he's boarding the slave ship um, to mm -hmm. go to the Americas, he talks about how Europeans are drinking claret wine, which is, you know, red and he thinks that they're drinking blood, right? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, it's I think it's just one of these um, human fears that seems to be almost transhistorical and is a way um, like I said, of, of of seeing others, especially when you're seeing them with fear or um, uh, anxiety, right? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I also thought, too, as far as, you know, thinking about, you know, using your work um, for undergraduates uh, who oftentimes, I think, are struggling with sort of trying to understand, you know, going back to sort of your broader thesis, I think, of, you know, slavery and sort of thinking about the enslavement of African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And then I think trying to, you know, use your book to understand, as you mentioned, sort of these nuances, this evolution of Native American captivity. And I think, um, especially in Chapter 2, you talked a little bit about um, the significance of the Yama war mm -hmm. um, and talking about, you know, the fact that there was sort of this fear uh, that existed amongst uh, many, you know, sort of white planners in the South that, uh, you know, that Native Americans sort of knew the land, they were familiar with the land, uh, and also uh, not being immune to different sort of old world diseases that you talk about, such as smallpox, yellow fever, influenza, malaria, and so forth. Um, and this is uh, on chapter, uh, in chapter two on uh, page 78 in particular. And I guess I was just interested in, in sort of thinking about your work and trying to sort of, again, get to undergraduates mm -hmm. who sort of tend to write about, they say, oh, well, Native Americans died and they vanished and, mm -hmm. and then that's why African Americans were chosen as slaves. And it's this very sort of simplistic understanding, I think, of, of you know, again, this, this evolution of captivity and, and slavery. Um, and so can you just try to unpack that a little bit, especially, again, thinking and considering, you know, sort of an, an undergraduate audience that really might miss some of the nuances that you really talk a lot about. Right, sure. Um, well, I think the one thing that the historiography, um, not just my work, but you might look to the work of Brett Rushforth and uh, Alan Gallet and uh, Robbie Etheridge um, and Paul Kelton, um, one thing that folks have really done is to say that um, Indian captivity or Indian slavery is all over North America. I mean, no matter whether we're looking at um, South Carolina or New Mexico or New France, um, Indians are um, the first group taken as slaves. Um, 
And this happens in two ways, really. First, um, what happens is that Europeans are tapping into indigenous captivity practices, and that's really what you see more of in the southeast. Or you could see um, Europeans directly taking Indians as slaves themselves. Um, but um, you know, in either case, what Europeans um, really see is is Indians as a potential labor source, um, and this is something that I think we're only coming to terms of with in American history is is Indi the idea of Indians as the first targets of slavery. Um, and of course, what you see in the Southeast um, is a transition to African slavery over time. And I mean, what I want to indicate with my book um, is to really make people think critically about the category of freedom, you know, and not seeing it as a kind of natural category that has always existed. Um, it's really something that was imagined into existence in the way that we currently understand it during the revolutionary era. And before then, there are a lot of people in early America who are unfree. I mean, there are um, Indian slaves, African slaves, indentured servants who were sometimes kept in, you know, really never escaped servitude throughout their lives. Um, and um, what happens is that, that that fate becomes slowly settled on African people in particular. And that that is what's so distinctive about American slavery, um, what makes it so peculiar as an institution um, as the 18th century and wears on, um, that it targeted African people almost exclusively and that it freed so few of them. And I really point to the Yamasee War as a major turning point in this um, because essentially, you know, Native people um, they are already producing captives. They're selling many of these captives to European traders who are then putting them to work on South Carolina plantations or even shipping them to New England or to the Caribbean to work as slaves. Um, and uh, this continues, it accelerates up until um, 1715 when the Yamases and several other native groups, um, the Creeks, uh, the Choctaws, um, rise up against uh, these these British slave traders and um, most of them kill the, the traders who are residents in their own nations and they also launch an attack on South Carolina that really almost destroys the colony. Um, basically everyone is pushed into the walled city of Charleston and um, a, it leaves a significant number of um, Carolina residents dead. Um, so this this really promotes a great deal of anxiety in South Carolina. And it's something really that um, the British crown was always concerned about. Um, that is the idea that um, whites are a minority in the South, um, especially during this period. They're overwhelmed by large native populations and an increasing African population. And there's a lot of anxiety about um, either an Indian uprising or a combined black Indian uprising, which might destroy the white population. So um, people really come to question the wisdom of enslaving Indians in the first place. Um, and, you know, up until 1715, about one in every four slaves in South Carolina is an Indian. Um, and after, especially after the 1720s, that percentage um, declines quite a bit. Um, and it's important to note that um, 
you know, this does continue in a small way, even up through the removal era. That is the idea of enslaving Indians, but it's never on the scale that it was in that very early period. Okay. Uh, as you move and talking a little bit about um, just kind of that point into the 19th century, and you talk uh, in Chapter 8 especially about uh, the Seminoles, and I know that history is sort of widely known, and it's um, particularly, uh, you know, I think significant to what you're, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of these ideas of um, sort of racial slavery, which evolves, you know, into the 19th century. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, um, you know, about that history for those, uh, you know, who might be unfamiliar with it in terms of the, these intersections between African Americans and Native Americans, especially in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Well, uh, part of what happens in the book is that Native Americans in the South increasingly, like their white neighbors, come to settle on African slavery as the preferred form of slavery. Um, and this happens for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. Um, but what happens among the Seminoles is a little bit different and interesting and um, essentially um, uh, while other southern Indian nations, and I'm talking mostly here about the Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, and Chickasaws, while they ca- begin to codify racial slavery and targeting African Americans, um, the Seminoles create this kind of more pluralistic, inclusive society. And, you know, I wouldn't say we, we don't need to romanticize it too much. It's not an egalitarian society, but it is very, very different from what's happening in the rest of the South. Um, and part of that, I think, is because of um, the the particulars of Seminole history. So most Seminoles descend from Creeks, and they're usually socially conservative Creeks who have purposely moved away from their nation to make a break. Um, And I think what they're doing is consciously preserving a lot of their traditional notions of identity and of what a nation is. And one of the things that they do in this case of incorporating African-Americans is um, they kind of reinvent the Mississippian chiefdom. Um, And so this is something that had existed in pre-Columbian times. And it's a way of incorporating um, outside peoples as junior members of a chiefdom. Um, So it's an idea of power sharing and of reciprocity. You know, again, not on an equal basis, but on a basis that's much more favorable to African Americans than what they would get anywhere else in the South. And so you see an influx of African Americans, you know, somewhat through captivity. Seminoles are still practicing some forms of captivity, but you also see a lot of African Americans voluntarily showing up in Seminole country, Mm -hmm. running away You know, we have this idea of slaves running north for freedom across the Ohio, but it's important to remember that a lot of people ran south, too, and um, and looked for, you know, the best option that they had um, within the region, and that was among the Seminoles. I mean, they had these... uh, these kind of quasi-autonomous detached villages, which would be subject to a chief. And they really had a lot of autonomy and evidence suggests that they had um, quite a lot of freedom in fashioning their own lives um, within the Seminole nation. So that's really something that endures in the South up until Seminole removal um, in the late 1830s and and early 1840s. Okay. That actually... um brings me to another question, something I think that struck me about your work and just sort of thinking about, you know, how does gender work, you know, mm. in this story? Um, and I particularly thought about it um, going back into um, some of the Mississippian culture in Chapter 3. You talk a little bit about um, marital practices, and you used a term that I was unfamiliar with, um, beloved women. Um, 
can you talk a bit about you know what that term meant and and means uh, you know in the in the context and sort of how you sort of thought about um, you know sort of how gender works. Sure. Yeah, I mean, gender is a major factor in the story. And one of the things that really makes um, Native peoples of the South um, different and interesting uh, is that they practice matrilineal kinship, which means that they um, reckon descent through the mother's side and not through the father's side. Um, so um, this, this gives women power in certain arenas, and particularly when it comes to um, Native people also organize themselves into clans, which are these, um, again, these uh, social groups of, of related members who, who all believe themselves to be related through the maternal line. So these um, beloved women, what they essentially are, are um, respected female elders of a clan. And so um, one of their responsibilities as uh, elders of, of the clan was to decide um, matters that were important to their people. So this might include, we know that this included, for example, um, things like um, land. Um, so these are also agricultural societies wherein women are in charge of farming. So um, uh, the, the land itself was thought to um, be inherited from one um, female clan member to the next. Um, but another obvious component of, of their obligations is to regulate the clan itself, and this would include the inclusion of new members. So um, one of the beloved women's responsibility, um, and we know this especially in the 18th century, is to decide um, when captives come to a village who should who would make it a, a, a good family member? You know, will this person become a slave or um, will this person be killed or will this person become incorporated into our family? So this is one of the decisions that the beloved woman would have made and one of the ways in which you can really see female power at work in these Native societies. Okay. Really interesting. Well, I want to close, actually, um, and just talk a little bit about um, a little of some of your new work. Um, I was looking on your bio on your departmental website, and it says that you're working on some new research about uh, the Choctaws and specifically uh, uh, educational history amongst the Choctaws. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, just some of that new research that you're conducting on that? Sure. Um, so this is my new project, um, which is about Choctaw Academy. The f it's in its the first national Indian boarding school. So. It's different from previous um, educational experiments in the United States in that it's not connected to a particular mission and it's ultimately under the control of the War Department, so the federal government. Um, but it's much earlier than many of the other boarding schools that uh, Americans typically think about, like Carlisle, for example. So Choctaw Academy actually operates between 1825 and 1848. And initially, it's a collaborative project between the Choctaw Nation who wanted an alternative to mission education and, and wanted a um, a more secular and more elite kind of schooling than what they were getting at home um, with the missionaries. Um, so they collaborated with uh, the federal government to create this school. And initially, there's a lot of hope um, about what this school might accomplish. Um, and this is a real period of transition and trauma for Native people because it corresponds to the removal era. So again, the, the era in which Native peoples are being forcibly removed 
east of the Mississippi, uh, west of the Mississippi, to, to Indian Territory, what became Oklahoma. So this is seen Western schooling in particular, English literacy, surveying, um, the familiarity with American law and customs was seen as something that would be vital to retaining sovereignty and retaining nationhood during this really perilous period. Um, and so I'm looking specifically at what Native leaders wanted to achieve with this education and um, how they thought of their nation within um, the broader context of American imperialism during this period. Um, so, you know, it's, it's in a sense taking this small space of Choctaw Academy, which is, you know, composed of many Choctaws, but also representatives of 15 other tribes. So at its, at its largest, this is actually a school that contains 188 students representing 16 tribes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's also on the plantation of Richard Mentor Johnson, who's, who becomes Martin Van Buren's vice president. And mm -hmm. um, he also has a long-term African-American concubine named mm -hmm. Julia Chen. Um, and she and their children engage in much of the day-to-day -day kind of work at the school. So I'm really looking at all of these folks um, and their experiences with um, a rapidly changing American continent. Um, that sounds yeah, that sounds interesting. I definitely would like to read that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, well, I do want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about your first book. And again, I congratulate you for all of the awards and the accolades that that book has received and certainly recommend it to anyone. Um, and this book is Slavery in Indian Country, The Changing Face of Captivity in Early America, published in 2010. Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Erica. I appreciate it. You've been listening to New Books in Native American Studies. We've been listening to Christina Snyder, author of Slavery in Indian Country, The Changing Face of Captivity in Early America, out from Harvard University Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or follow us on Facebook to leave questions or suggestions about new books you'd like to hear on this program. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and we hope you join us again.